Hey there, I'm Damien Blenkinsop with another episode of The Quantified Body. We're at an interesting time in health and medical care right now. Today's standard of care has proven good at resolving acute health concerns like car crash injuries and deadly viruses and other pathogens. It's not faring so well against the growing number of chronic health concerns. That while they don't kill us, they do lower our quality of life. The standard of care aims to manage symptoms, often with the use of drugs targeting symptom neutralization, so you could think neurofen for headaches, for example, or reduction. This often leaves us with a lifelong dependence on drugs and or lower quality of life. Think about how many of us take the standard sleep medications from pharmacies or for headaches or for gut problems. Most of us. What if we could take another route. What if we could identify the original trigger of our symptoms, whether it's headaches or aches or other things? What if it would enable us to fully recover our quality of life and live symptom-free with the vitality we started out with? My personal belief is that nothing is unresolvable. It's just a puzzle we have to figure out. This has attracted me to the world of functional medicine, where there is a similar philosophy where functional doctors are battling every day like health detectives to solve these puzzles and completely heal their patients. Many of the people we've already had on the quantified body come from the realm of functional medicine, whether they're talking about mitochondria, methylation, oxidative stress, or detoxification. While they don't bring us perfect solutions today, we're far off from that. They are making progress, and they are sometimes succeeding in cases where standard of care only tries to manage the situation with drugs. So functional medicine is also raising the bar for what is deemed healthy and optimum. Many of us accept minor complaints that lower our quality of life, or reduce our performance, or ultimately our longevity. Functional medicine gives us hope and paths to tackle these, to take control and responsibility for our health and well-being as we rightly should. So today we're looking at the framework functional medicine uses to tackle the puzzles of less than ideal health and how it is using quantified data to do its detective work. We also do a bit of a deep dive into detoxification, which is one of seven core physiological processes functional medicine looks at to discover the root of any problem we have inside our bodies. Today's guest has been named the godfather of functional medicine. Jeffrey Bland, PhD, has been working tirelessly for 35 years to solve chronic health issues, which ultimately led to him creating the functional medicine movement. His bio is too long and impressive to go over, but here are some of the highlights. He's the principal author of over 120 peer-reviewed research papers on nutritional biochemistry and medicine. He founded the Institute for Functional Medicine in 1991 with his wife, Susan. He's worked on the boards of a variety of companies through the years, emphasized nutritional product development and, and other things that target chronic health issues through laboratory work and clinical studies. He has served as director of nutritional research at the Linus Pauling Institute of Science and Medicine in the early 80s, working directly with two-time Nobel laureate Dr. Linus Pauling, which I'm sure some of you have heard of. Finally, just recently, he authored the book, The Disease Delusion, I highly recommend reading this book. It's really a great in-depth book, which gives an overview of functional medicine, allows you to understand it and their approach. It also looks at many of the potential sources of problems in your body and may give you ideas if you're facing 
issues with performance, longevity, or your health in general. As usual, you can go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes to find all of the episodes, including this one, which should be at the top if you've just received it, or a bit further down. On the site, you get easy-to-use interview transcripts, links and references from today's episode, including all the biomarkers, the apps and labs, and everything else mentioned on the show, including, of course, links to the guests and what they are up to. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Great, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this morning. My deep pleasure. Thanks so much. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, your book is great. Um, really appreciate it. It really gives a great perspective on a number of things from a, you know, a different perspective that most people are used to seeing. So the first thing I wanted to go into is functional medicine. What is the difference between functional medicine and contemporary medicine, the medicine we're, we're used to when we're going to hospitals and, and uh, primary care doctors and so on? How would you define the differences? Well, Damien, I think that's a, that's a very good question, and it really asks of us, um, you know, what's the elevator speech? If you only got a couple of floors uh, in an elevator to describe the difference, how would you do it? And, and we've grappled with this question for some time, and I'm not sure we've completely got it down, but let me give a give a try. Um, the medicine that most of us are familiar with that is insurance reimbursable, uh, kind of traditional hospital-based or clinic-based uh, healthcare, and that which I was trained in and most docs today were trained in, is focused on disease, the primacy of disease. Uh, and so it's all about the diagnosis and then finding the appropriate treatment for that diagnosis. The diagnosis is really related to a clinical series of presenting signs and symptoms. So the patient comes in with uh, whatever their complaints are, uh, the doc reviews those complaints, they do whatever lab tests might be suggested from those complaints, and then from that a name, a title of a disease is finally given from which then reimbursement can occur and in therapy can result, generally pharmacotherapy, some kind of drug or drugs or surgery. That, however, doesn't ever really address the question of where these things came from. What's the cause of these conditions? So often we end up being able to treat effectively the signs and symptoms of its outcome, the disease, without treating its cause. And uh, functional medicine is all about the cause. It's not about what you call it. It's about how you got there. So the most important thing for a functional medicineist provider is to understand what we would call the, the, the journey that led to a diagnosis to treat the cause and not the effect. Whereas medicine today, I think, is more involved with calling what the final destination is and treating its effect rather than its cause. Great. And if we could take a concrete example, I think that might help to clarify it for some people. One of the diseases that are defined by the world of primary care and, and so on, is multiple sclerosis, right? So that's a, a disease condition. And there are some a number of drugs and things uh, around available to treat that. How would functional medicine look at that? What are the differences in the way you would look at multiple sclerosis? I think that's a really excellent example, actually. That um, fits right into this discussion very nicely. And in fact, it's actually one of the examples that I use in the book, The Disease Delusion, to um, uh, help the reader to kind of understand the difference between the functional medicine approach and, and a traditional diagnostic uh, pharmacology approach. So a functional medicine practitioner, when they would uh, see a person who has been diagnosed with MS, would first ask the question in their mind, 
what do we know about MS? We, we know that multiple sclerosis is a member of the autoimmune family of diseases. These are the diseases that are characterized with the body's immune system attacking itself, uh, attacking the body itself, leading to collateral damage. In the case of MS, the uh, body's immune system is attacking the uh, nerves and specifically the uh, insulation of the nerves, which are the myelin sheaths, uh, the things that coat the nerves, it kind of like uh, insulation on a wire that's plugged into the wall socket. It's, um, it's the insulation on your nerves. It protects the wire, the nerves, from being uh, damaged or having uh, problems with, with transmitting electricity like you would have in the, in the socket of a light. And so when your body's immune system attacks the insulation of your nerves, the myelin, it starts to lead to um, kind of a short circuit of the nervous system, just as if you lost the insulation off the wire and it goes to your light bulb, you might end up short-circuiting that and maybe sparks would fly out or you catch the curtains on fire or any number of collateral damage could occur from losing that insulation. And so the treatment of choice is to give an individual who has that diagnosis of MS drugs that are designed to try to block the effect of that immune reaction against your nerves. So it would be certain kinds of anti-inflammatory drugs or drugs that uh, prevent the insulation of the nerves from being further damaged. The functional medicine approach, however, would be to ask, well, why is that person having the loss of the insulation on the wires of their nerves? What was the cause of this? And the first um, kind of assumption that many people have is, well, that must be in my uh, my genes. That uh, Gee whiz, I have family members that have autoimmune disease, or I have a family member that might have even had MS, and so it, it must be my genetic inheritance. However, when the data is looked at as it relates to that specific disease, MS, like so many other of the autoimmune diseases, there is a very weak linkage between genetics and MS. It's not a hardwired genetic disease. So it may have a, a weak linkage to certain immune relationships that give rise to autoimmunity, but it's not a disease that we can say this is a cause, this is caused by your genetic heritage. Therefore, there must be another factor or factors. And this is where the functional medicine detective story uh, emerges because the functional medicine practitioner then would say, well, let's look at all of the various factors that have been identified in the medical scientific literature that are associated with the cause of an immune system attacking the nerves. And this could be things like toxic chemicals. It could be things like uh, heavy elements, uh, toxic elements like mercury or cadmium. It could be things like uh, reaction to certain food proteins that your body sees as foreigners, uh, one of which would be gluten. It could be the result of insufficiency of specific uh, vitamin factors, particularly vitamin D, which has been studied extensively by Michael Hollick, Michael, uh, Dr. Heaney, and uh, Dr. Holub uh, as it relates to vitamin D insufficiencies. Uh, or it could be associated with uh, uh, situations that relate to um, uh, the exposure to what you would call xenobiotic chemicals, uh, certain agents that uh, activate the immune system, which including even certain members of the drug family, which uh, certain individuals have uh, immune response to and, and it becomes uh, uh, seen as a foreigner that the body's immune system then starts attacking the nerves. So there is a whole laundry list of various agents that 
might trigger the immune system of a person who is considered normally healthy to now start developing an immune reaction to their nerves. So rather than just jumping in and giving a person something that blocks the inflammation, the functional medicine provider would start going through, as a detective might, uh, Sherlock Holmes of the etiology of the condition, uh, asking, could this person that has this condition have these problems? Could they be uh, suffering from too much mercury? Could they have too much cadmium? Could they be uh, suffering from exposure to certain chemicals? Could they be taking certain pharmaceuticals that activate the immune system? Could they be vitamin D deficient? Do they have certain food allergies like gluten that uh, are inducing this immune response? And then from that detective approach, that the kind of examination, a tailored, personalized program for that individual's own form of MS would be developed. Rather than just treat them as a, a person with MS, like you would every other person with that diagnosis, you now design a program based upon their specific uh, unique presentation that is focused on managing the cause and not just the effect. And those results, when you deliver that model in clinical practice, can be extraordinary. They can be miraculous. We have seen literally hundreds of patients over the years that I've been involved with both clinical research and, and overseeing clinical research center and where patients come in with various forms of MS or various forms of autoimmune disease and how their conditions, once you identify the cause and not just the effect, can be completely turned back and uh, go into remission. So that's a different model. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. So if I kind of retake it um, and see if you could say that this is accurate or not, traditional medicine is looking at the effect and it's trying the effects, the symptoms you have, and they're trying to categorize you amongst um, a number of diseases that they have on record. They have a hundred different diseases, cancers, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, all these things, which have been categorized according to symptoms, a list of symptoms. And whereas when we're coming from the functional medicine side, we kind of ignore that for the moment. And we say, okay, we don't, just because they have these symptoms, we don't know what the actual cause is. So we're going to do a number of different tests and it, we're not going to make any assumptions about what's actually causing this until we've, we've done some investigation and uh, we could find, and the idea is that we could find any number of causes and they could end up at the same symptoms due to the mix of genetics, epigenetics and the other processes going on in our bodies, but they can arrive at that different ending, the, the symptoms from completely different causes. Is that accurate representation of what you just said? Yes, I think very much so. And I, I think for the, the listener, it's important to note that the, the number of diseases within the diagnostic handbook are literally thousands of different diseases. And um, often uh, a doc might feel that their job is over once they've got a good diagnosis because then they can dial up a specific pharmacotherapy. But within each of those diagnoses, no matter what the name is, whether you have diabetes or arthritis or MS, Every person with that diagnosis, that specific diagnosis, presents slightly differently. They have a different reason they got it. They have a different a reason that it gets worse and it uh, has progression. So in the absence of personalizing treatment uh, to the individual need, focusing on the cause, not the effect, you don't get optimal outcome. And that's the functional medicine revolution, is looking at the person as, an, as a unique individual and personalizing their treatment program appropriately. Right. Thank you very much. Another aspect of this I wanted to see and what the value I see in, in functional medicine and kind of where I came into contact with it from my own personal story is that because of the approach of categorization, 
of symptoms, there are many people who fall through the cracks, either because their symptoms aren't acute enough, so they don't meet a diagnostic criteria. For example, an MRI wouldn't show the white blips on it that are typically used for multiple sclerosis in those kind of scans, for example. Or they're not meeting one of those diagnostic criteria, which falls neatly into one of those categories. And they maybe have some symptoms which are considered that everyone should have these days. For example, everyone complains of headaches. Everyone has a bit of fat around their stomachs these days. And they find it hard to get rid of and it's blamed on a number of things. Um, so my own personal story is that, you know, I kind of fell through the cracks because I didn't fit into any categories. And I know there's many, many people who do that. And we finally end up at functional medicine because functional medicine seems to say we can try and resolve any condition that you have from a basis of looking at a list of potential causes. And it's supposedly a, a comprehensive list of things that can go wrong in the body and working its way through that. So is that another way to, to look at it? Because I know a lot of people kind of end up at the functional medicine road, end of medicine, um, because they've kind of fallen through the cracks or they have some chronic condition which doctors aren't addressing properly. Is that a fair assumption as to that's how people mostly arrive at functional medicine? And also, if um, you are able to, in fact, pretty much attempt to resolve any kind of symptoms, any anything that's not working correctly in the body? Yes, I think you, uh, again, have really pointed to a major issue within the way that our healthcare system works right now, which is basically a disease care system. As we know, it's, it's not so much focused on health as it is a treatment of disease. So when a person has broad ranges of, of chronic symptoms that cut across many different organ systems, it could be fatigue and pain and low energy and cognitive dysfunction and gastrointestinal problems and alternating constipation, diarrhea, and sleep disturbances, and depression, and you know they, they may come with a, with a whole laundry list of, uh, of different chronic symptoms. Uh, depending on what doctor you see, uh, they're all going to try to drive those symptoms into a specific diagnosis, uh, and it's going to be based on their, their background. So they're going to find their disease that they are most <laughs> comfortable with to use that as a name that they're going to apply to that uh, cluster of symptoms that the patient presents with because they have to get a disease diagnosis so they can get reimbursed. And so they're going to call it something. Well, the something they call it may not be nearly as important as you've said as to how the patient got there um, and what were the various factors in their uh, lifestyle and their environment that were really creating this complicated disturbance in their physiology that's caused their chronic illness. It's not a disease as much as it's a disturbance that's caused by the mismatch between their genetic uniqueness and their environment. And if you don't start asking those questions, then you never really get the answer. What you do is you end up with a kind of a round robin of different doctors with different treatments that uh, treat different symptoms with different drugs to suppress pain or inflammation or suppress sleep uh, problems or to uh, block uh, stomach acid or what, what in each of those uh, you're basically uh, uncoupling the smoke detector you're not treating the fire in the room you're uncoupling the, the signs and symptoms that were there to really tell you there's something going on that needs to be addressed so the functional medicine model often is very attractive to a person who has a, a history of having lack of success with the traditional disease diagnostic and treatment model because it just hasn't been successful in managing the range of their clinical problems because it never asked the right questions. And it turns out that if you look at the kinds of conditions that are dominant within our society today, 
they are these chronic conditions. In fact, over 75% of healthcare expenditures in our system today are spent for the management of chronic illness, not acute disease, but chronic illness. Yet when you go to have chronic illness managed, it's often managed with drugs that were used for acute care. They're not drugs that really treat the cause of the chronic illness. They're drugs that are treating the acute symptoms and not treating its cause. So I, I think we have a very big mismatch of uh, what patients would like and what the treatment approach that they're getting is being applied. And there's where function medicine has a big role to play. Yeah, great, thank you. So just to give the audience a bit of an idea about this, would you say, for instance, that headaches are resolvable? Is that the type of chronic condition that we... Uh, for instance, I had some strange headaches uh, you know, when, I, when I got ill a few, a few years ago and they sent me to a psychologist. Um, but in the world of functional medicine, I know that that happens to a lot of people, like it, or they get given the answer, well, everyone kind of has headaches and it's not resolvable. Um, and I think headaches are a very common uh, thing, you know, complaint today. And a lot of people are taking, going to pharmacies and taking medications for this. Do you think that's something that's resolvable in like 90% of cases with, with a functional medicine approach, or at least there's a good percentage of those that could find something, some kind of cause behind that, and it's not normal to just have headaches? Well, again, I think that's a wonderful example. You're picking some great examples. Uh, headaches is uh, one of those uh, conditions. It's a sign or a symptom. It's not a disease in and of itself that has many multiple functional um, contributions that lead to what we call headaches. So it could be a magnesium deficiency. It could be a vitamin B6 deficiency. It could be, a uh, again, another relationship to a food or environmental sensitivity, uh, toxicity of types. It could be related to a problem with the microbiome, the, the gut bacteria that are producing toxic uh, secondary byproducts that have an effect upon uh, the function that we see then ultimately as a headache. It could have to do with the vascular effects that are associated with uh, uh, lack of exercise. It could be due to hypertension because a person is taking the wrong kinds of things in their diet and lifestyle that are increasing their blood pressure and by putting them on a vegetable-based diet uh, Lo and behold, their their food their headaches go away. So, a functional medicine provider would look at this list of potentials and start making a differential diagnosis of that individual patient or assessment as to what their specific uh, causation might be of their headache, and work with them. Not just give them a headache treatment remedy, a drug to to un, again uncouple the smoke detector of the headache, but to treat the cause of that condition when. In fact, that occurs. I don't have a specific uh, percentage I could give you, but I would say for sure the vast majority of chronic headache sufferers will be in remission. Their headaches have been demonstrated to go away. So I think that this is another great example of a clinical presenting sign and symptom that through a functional medicine systems biology approach can lead to remediation because you treated the cause, not just the effect. Right. And what I love about the philosophy is that it kind of puts control back in our hands because we're saying that there's always some cause of what is happening. And it's not just, I guess, in conventional medicine, sometimes it'll be put down to genetics or something that's not addressable. Um, but often in functional medicine, the locus of control comes back to us. And, it's, and it just says, we just have to find the cause. If we can find the cause, then, then we can fix no matter what is going on with the human body and, and causing these symptoms. Is that a fair reiteration? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if I was to kind of distill down the whole focus of uh, my book, uh, The Disease Delusion, that's really what it's all about is 
returning the power to the individual for the control of their health. I think a lot of people have had their health kind of hijacked from them because they feel it's uh, either a consequence of uh, their genetic lineage that they had no control over or it's their doctor that's controlling their health. In essence, what we have learned since the deciphering of the human genome in 2000 is that actually we control, each one of us controls how our genes are expressed and that the way that we think, act, believe, behave, drink, eat, exercise, sleep, have relationships with other people, think of ourselves as valued parts of, uh, of society, those all have direct impact in, in, on how our genes are expressed and regulate how we look, act, and feel. And so I think that this is a hugely empowering age in which we live, in which the individual becomes much more important than they were in the previous period of society where we were all part of massification of society, where just wanted to be part of the average. Now the power of the individual has become very, very important, and we can give people the tools to not become doctors, but to understand themselves well enough that they can start navigating through life in such a way to design their health, their own health program as contrasted to their own disease treatment program, which comes from the doctor. Great, excellent. So in a minute, I'd like to like give us a bit more of a practical quantified focus. We, we often talk about quantified aspects here on how you make use of labs and, and data in functional medicine to identify the causes that you're talking about. But first of all, I just wanted to look at the, basically you have a framework in your, in your book, The Disease Delusion. And it's this framework for saying like, these are all the potential causes of problems. The framework you described, is that the basis of functional medicine today? Was, was that coming from you? Could you give us a bit of an overview of where that framework is? Because I think it's a really great, I, a lot of the aspects of it, I haven't seen them described in that way before. I think it's a really, it seems like what we would say in consulting language, um, MECE was mutually exclusive and, and comprehensive, basically. So it covers everything and it has, it's a very nice framework, I can say from my consulting background. Um, but just from your perspective, where, where does that come from? Is that something recent or is it something that's been used in functional medicine for a while? Is it something that you're hoping will be used more and more going forward? Yes, thank you. Uh, the way that this functional medicine concept was actually birthed was um, in 1989 and 90. Uh, my wife and I hosted uh, meetings about a week long each in Victoria, British Columbia on Vancouver Island, where we invited about 30 or 40 of um, the top opinion leaders that we had met uh, from different fields to kind of sit down quietly uh, over a period of a few days uh, with a whiteboard and uh, and address the question, what would be the best possible medical system that you could conceive of with your experience from the different disciplines they represented? Um, and let's not talk about reimbursement. Let's not talk about healthcare financing. Let's just talk about theoretically, what would this system look like? And, and from that uh, two-year uh, exploration, emerged the concept that we would uh, develop a system that really looked at the individual and how they, uh, over time, altered had altered function. And we'd have different diagnostic criteria, different assessment tools, and, and we would uh, be able to earlier on understand when a person is heading in a trajectory towards a disease well before they become uh, a cancer patient or a heart disease patient or a diabetic patient uh, or whatever it might be. And uh, that led us into asking what would be then the types of things we'd want to know of that person so we'd be able to better early on understand their trajectory towards um, not optimal health. And we uh, started looking at the scientific and medical literature, and this group of people were pretty good at understanding what was going on within 
the discoveries that were being made. And we uh, eventually started putting references and, and articles together and, and stacking them in different piles to see if they, if they fit into different uh, kind of what we call buckets. And from that, eventually emerged the fact that uh, these conditions that lead to altered function that later become diseases as a person progresses towards more severity could be characterized into seven different buckets. And we call those the seven core physiological processes. And over the now subsequent 25 years since that time, lo and behold, those buckets were pretty close to the way things have uh, evolved in, in science and, and in medicine over the last quarter century. So those buckets included detoxification, they included uh, immune defense, they included hormone signaling, they included gastrointestinal function, they included uh, structural relationships, they included bioenergetics. Each one of these seven core physiological processes, by the way, I've described in individual chapters in my book. And, and then we developed questionnaires uh, for the patient that were associated with the presenting clinical symptoms and signs that were associated with the dysfunctions in each of those uh, seven areas. And to help the person to better understand where were their strengths and where were their weaknesses. And uh, that formalism became then the functional medicine assessment program and approach. And... Uh, Obviously, over the last uh, 25 years, it's become much more sophisticated and much more well-defined and, and well-understood. But I am quite amazed that what we uh, birthed or germinated in, uh, in 1989 and 90 has really proven out over the last quarter century to actually be very applicable to, um, to clinical intervention and to improving outcome in, in patients with chronic illness. Great, great. I didn't realize it, the, the structure, the framework had, had actually been around that long. I assumed it was actually maybe something that you'd come up with pretty recently because, as you say, it tackles all of the current themes of research and everything that's, that's currently going on. And, and So in terms of um, the process that you go through, if you could give us a very high view of, of what happens when you go to see a functional medicine um, doctor with you know s some complaints and you're not sure, is there a very typical process? Like, do you start with a questionnaire, as you said, to kind of, identify the different parts of that seven-piece framework that goes wrong. And could you walk us through to kind of on a top level what would happen if someone went to functional medicine? When you go to uh, kind of your uh, traditional disease-focused uh, practitioner, the, um, the whole drive is to try to get a differential diagnosis, try to get a name that you can put on your condition. And um, that's different than the functional medicine practitioner. They, they may obviously be interested in a diagnosis if a person has one, but their approach will be different from the beginning in that uh, uh, the approach is to look at the antecedents, triggers, mediators, and signs and symptoms. Now, what does that mean? Antecedents are the uh, preceding factors in that person's life that may have given rise over time to the clinical condition and the problems that they're experiencing. And, and that has to do with looking at your genetic uh, background, looking at your family history, uh, looking at various kinds of uh, things that may have happened earlier in life. It could be illnesses, surgeries, uh, just a really good what I call historical um, history and physical, as well as bringing in genetic uh, information into the story and, and uh, other aspects of your environment and lifestyle habits. That's antecedents. And uh, the next question is, uh, what are the triggers that are triggering in your antecedents those kinds of signs and symptoms that you're presenting with, the things that brought you to see a healthcare provider? You know, most patients, when, or most people, when they feel perfect, don't wake up and say, oh, gee, I had to go uh, see one of my healthcare providers because I feel so 
good today, I ought to find out why. They, they come because they have a series of complaints. So the triggers could be things like uh, uh, maybe an automobile accident or maybe a, a severe trauma that you've had, psychological trauma with a, a partner, a spouse, a child. It may be an infection. It, it may be uh, uh, that you just were put on a certain medication that you're having a response, adverse response to it. Maybe an environmental exposure. So these are the triggering agents uh, that then are the exacerbators, like the straw that broke the camel's back. The triggers then produce a series of what we call mediators in the body. Mediators could be different hormones. They could be inflammatory cytokines. They could be different uh, types of uh, things that relate to your body's immune response uh, that you can measure through laboratory testing. So these mediators are your body's response to the triggers that laid on top of your antecedents. And then those then produce your signs and symptoms of different severity, duration, and frequency. The evaluation of that whole story that I've just described, antecedents, medi uh, triggers, mediators, signs, and symptoms, gives rise to an understanding of the patient's story. And the patient's story is the most important part of this whole differential assessment that the uh, functional medicine provider uses. Now, maybe that story will ultimately lead you to say, well, we can call this story diabetes, but it's diabetes of a unique type that's unique to that person that needs their own unique type of intervention because of 100 diabetic patients, there are 100 different stories with the same diagnosis. So this is, I think, how one would come about developing a relationship with a functional medicine provider versus an individual that might just say, oh, you have diabetes, okay, so you're going to get metformin and you're going to get uh, Actos. You know, that's the drugs of choice. In this case, we're looking at a much more deep and broader relationship between why your blood sugar and insulin-related glucose problems are presenting based upon your own antecedents, triggers, mediators, signs, and symptoms. And of it, having been through this process myself, I would say that something that comes across very different from the first part is that the question I was put first when I went through the process was, uh, I was asked, when was the last time you felt completely well? And I think the answer to that comes back very differently to when you go into a typical traditional doctor's office, because I had to think back and I was like, well, actually, this has been going on for over 10 years. There was some tiny things that were going wrong many, many, many years ago. So I think that's, a, that's an interesting question. And it really starts the whole discussion on a completely different level. Is that the typical question that would be asked? Yes, I think that. And you'll notice in my book, uh, the, the first questionnaire in the book asks that very question. Do you feel your health has changed significantly within the last year? That is a very, very important question because it helps us to understand the trajectory towards change, um, the change in health, which is related to functional change, which is related to there's something going on because your genes didn't change in that year. Something happened to how your genes are expressing their function. And then we start asking the questions from there. So yes, that's a very first level important question. Great, thank you very much. Now, how does this connect with the, what we call like, you know, the more quantified aspect of this in terms of lab tests or any other diagnostic tools. Is there a typical first stage in looking at lab tests? Are there kind of favorite areas of testing of functional medicine? What kind of things would you say are important in functional medicine when it comes to the testing aspect? Well, I think this is a little bit like uh, the layers of an onion. And you start off with the easiest and least expensive things first, which is uh, a good, as I said, diff uh, assessment using this antecedents, triggers, mediator, signs and symptoms approach that is uh, unique to functional medicine. You can do that by questionnaires. These are kind of pen and paper pieces of information. Many of those questionnaires I've included in my book. 
and also a, a good what I call physical assessment. And the functional medicine provider is very skilled in understanding how to assess nutritional inadequacy uh, with presenting signs and symptoms and present and how to assess different immune-related dysfunctions. So you, you have a good physical and history evaluation and uh, start there. That's the least expensive and least invasive. Then the, the next level would be to say, okay, we've identified uh, certain areas. Let's call, let's call it a gastrointestinal area where you've got reoccurring um, irritable bowel syndrome or you've got all upper GI dyspepsia where you have reflux disorder or something of that nature. So you've got certain kinds of information around a, a particular area of the body that's experiencing problems and you want to get more information about what is the nature of that functional difficulty. Now you would go into more detailed uh, testing. So for GI problems, you might do a stool test to evaluate whether there's funny bacteria that are producing what we call dysbiosis uh, and are causing inflammation of the intestinal tract. You might do certain type of a, a blood test for looking at uh, different types of uh, inflammatory agents like uh, high sensitivity C reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation. So you, you then start to put together a, a series of questions as a practitioner that would uh, be the questions you think are most important as you try to decipher that patient's individual problem, always remembering that uh, you want to keep the cost of your assessment to the lowest level possible so you don't throw the whole kitchen sink. You start to layer on the testing uh, as you are making your discovery. And you may, you may have, if it's a very kind of complicated, sophisticated case, it may require more testing. You may have to do fatty acid testing, amino acid testing, immune testing. Uh, there may be all sorts of heavy metal testing. So there, there could be a whole range of different things you layer on depending upon how sophisticated the problem that uh, person is presenting with. Thank you. Are there any particularly, amongst functional medicine providers, are there particularly popular areas of testing, specific tests, or ones that you've seen that have provided more value over time and, and they're kind of like your go-to tests, which you find you tend to find more information there and to find them more useful? Yes, I think there are. I think that um, you could start with the probably the most common and uh, also one of the most informative, and that is uh, to test glucose um, tolerance that that person has. And this is how insulin is working in their body. So this would be uh, starting with a simple blood test of uh, blood glucose and, and uh, what's called hemoglobin A1C to see if they have a problem in managing their blood sugar and managing their insulin uh, reactivity in the body. Um, and we probably would also want to measure in their blood uh, what's called triglyceride, and we would want to measure HDL, the so-called good cholesterol. Uh, the, that uh, portfolio of tests that would specific to insulin would help us to identify whether that person might have an insulin resistance uh, and a glucose intolerance. So if they had an elevated blood sugar, they had an elevated hemoglobin A1C, they had an elevated triglyceride and a low HDL, we'd say, oh, now that's a person that has a form of what's called metabolic syndrome, and we would want to start uh, managing their uh, therapeutic approach, uh, their functionalized approach, based upon the fact they're insulin resistant. For another person, it might be uh, that they're presenting with, as I mentioned, a long history of gastrointestinal-related problems. So in that person, we would be more interested maybe in focusing in on doing uh, what's called a comprehensive stool analysis to look for things that are going on in their digestive system that uh, are related to uh, dysbiosis, inflammation, and uh, food or toxic uh, response. For another person, it might be that they uh, have uh, 
headaches and cognitive dysfunction, dysphoria, meaning uh, kind of uh, depression symptoms and uh, uh, low energy. And we might think, well, that sounds like a person that's more likely to be toxic. So we'd want to do something related to toxicity testing and uh, probably do assessments of their liver's ability to detoxify foreign chemicals. And all of this, by the way, again, I've, I've described within the book in different chapters as to how you put this together. But uh, based upon the presenting signs and symptoms that person has, uh, it, it helps guide uh, the individual as to what the specific quantified information they'd want to make their assessment. Thank you very much for that. Actually, I'd like to kind of take a, a bit of a case example with uh, detoxification, because I think this is an area which uh, traditional medicine tends to address less and functional medicine tends to consider more strongly and, and look more at. Um, so it'd be nice to kind of like, as you say in your book, you go into each of the seven areas in a lot of detail and you give a lot of good case studies, um, which is very helpful for people to connect to what's going on there. But it, so in, in a detoxification case, um, what, what kinds of things would you, you were just talking about liver tests and so on, what kind of things would you look at first to understand if someone had a level of toxicity or a toxic burden that they had to deal with and that was potentially causing their symptoms? I think there's two types of uh, testing that are done for toxicity and, and its relationship to the body's ability to detoxify. The first is to look at the presence of toxins in the body, and there are a variety of different types of uh, testing protocols or tests uh, themselves that actually measure the level of things like bisphenol A or heavy metals like cadmium or mercury or lead or arsenic um, or aluminum that can uh, induce uh, toxicity. So these would be examining the presence of toxins in, uh, in the blood or in the urine or in the uh, sweat or in the fatty tissue. Um, and the other uh, type of test is to look at the individual's ability to detoxify. And our detoxifying system is controlled principally by two very uh, unique enzyme systems that are present in our body. One are called the cytochrome P450 enzymes and the other are called the, the conjugase enzymes. And they reside uh, to a great extent in the liver, but they are found in virtually every other uh, tissue in the body as well, uh, including the gastrointestinal tract, where these enzymes try to glomb on to these foreign substances and uh, to detoxify them and, and be able to eliminate in a non-toxic form, either in the urine or in the stool, to get them out of the body. And uh, people have a significant difference in their detoxifying abilities from person to person. Uh, this has to do with both difference in their genes and their genetic uh, ability to detoxify. One uh, might have a what we call a fast detoxifier effect for certain chemicals. Another might have a slow detoxifier effect. And secondly, it has to do with... Uh, how they've um, treated their detoxifying systems. In other words, have they eaten the right foods with the right nutrients that are necessary for the support of those detoxifying systems? Uh, nutrients like magnesium, uh, the B vitamins, uh, coenzyme Q10, acetylcysteine, uh, these are nutrients that are known to be very important for support of our detoxification systems. So the detoxifying ability of our body is really related to how much toxin are we exposed to, and what is the relative effectiveness of our detoxifying system in the body to get rid of them. So we can either have too much exposure or too little detoxifying ability, both of which leads to a state of chronic toxi uh, toxicity. I call it metabolic poisoning. And uh, this condition is not so 
obvious if the person is, you know, acutely toxic, like you would have from a, a poison like strychnine, but the symptoms are uh, often seen by what I call chronic, both immune and nervous system toxicity. These are the two most sensitive uh, uh, functions of our body to toxicity. One is our immune system and the other is our nervous system. So the signs and symptoms that are seen with chronic metabolic toxicity are focused around immune symptoms and around neurological symptoms. So this has to do with depression and sleep disturbances and foggy brain where a person can't think clearly, low energy, uh, various forms of cognitive dysfunction where they can't manipulate numbers or, or quick ideas as effectively as they used to. With immune toxicity, it has to do with uh, an immune system that is kind of working against itself. Uh, you have inflammation present. You also have increased uh, rates and in, in risk to various kinds of infectious organisms, viruses and bacteria. So the, the combination of those symptoms often is associated with this chronic cellular toxicity, for which then the appropriate detoxification program for that patient that's based upon their own unique uh, case can lead to extraordinary uh, benefit and improve their function. Yeah, thank you very much, because I think also the area of toxins and, and detox, if you walk in health stores today, I'm in LA and places like Erewhon or, or Whole Foods, there's a whole range of detoxification supplements. There's, there's aspects of the products in the shops like alkaline water and so on. There's a lot of things which are products now that are focused on helping to detox. But I feel like there's a fair amount of lack of rigor in a lot of the scientific basis uh, for a lot of these. So one of the areas I've heard you talk about at the Detox Summit, um, which I, I thought was um, particularly interesting, is uh, the topic of alkalinity, which comes up a lot. Um, there's a lot of alkaline water that's um, sold in shops, for instance. And it's said that if we take in alkaline, we make our bodies more alkaline, um, then it helps us to detox better. What is the scientific basis for that? And is, is it actually true? And from your perspective, what kind of things can be done in reality if it is effective to actually make that change? Alkalinity is, is um, related to the balance between acids and bases in the body. And uh, for those individuals that are not necessarily up on their human physiology, our, our body in its natural state, if you look at the blood, is slightly more basic than it's acidic. It has a what's called a pH, which is a measure of acid and base characteristics. If it was perfectly balanced, it would be a pH of 7. That's neutral. Uh, a number higher than 7 means it's a slightly more alkaline. Uh, a, a number lower than seven means it's, it's slightly more acid. And the lower the number goes, the more acid, the higher the number goes, more alkaline. And the body's um, pH is around 7.37 in the blood, um, which is slightly alkaline, slightly higher than neutral, which is seven. Uh, the situation in terms of chronic illness is that often cells or tissues have pHs that are lower than 7.37, meaning they are shifted towards a more acid side slightly, not into what we call metabolic acidosis, which is an acute situation that can be life-threatening, but just a slight shift in the uh, alkaline balance. And this is a, a consequence of a whole series of metabolic effects that, that shift um, the pH of cells slightly towards a more acid side. Uh, when I say slightly towards the more acid side, what I really should say is less alkaline side. The 
detoxification process you know, that occurs within cells in the liver and other tissues requires a, a pH and a balance that's more close to 7.37. It likes that more alkaline state for optimal detoxification function. If a person has a poison in their cells, uh, that poison often shifts their uh, cellular pH more to the more acid uh, side, less alkaline. And there are many studies that in poison centers have shown that if you administer then an alkalizing agent to that person, uh, this can either be done intravenously or orally, uh, meaning given something by mouth, uh, like sodium citrate or sodium bicarbonate, these are alkalizing substances, that it will then improve their detoxification ability. Now, in the case of chronic metabolic toxicity, you don't need to use, um, obviously, administration into your blood of an alkalizing agent. An alkalizing diet can be very, very helpful, and these are basically vegetable-based diets. Uh, Animal-based diets tend to have an acid residue, and they tend to be acidifying. Uh, Vegetable-based diets rich in uh, plant foods tend to have an alkaline uh, residue and tend to be alkalizing. And so you can use uh, plant foods, a plant food diet, and uh, more vegetables and fruits in, in alkalizing, or you can also use supplementary alkalizing substances like uh, sodium bicarbonate or sodium citrate, other things that will slightly shift your body's balance more towards the alkaline state, and that will help improve your detoxification ability. Great. So a couple of clarifications on some of the things that you spoke about there. You were talking about the blood pH 7.37, and if we wanted to measure this slight um, acidity change that you spoke about, is it possible to run lab tests on on the cell pH and the tissue pH? Because you're talking about those versus blood, which I believe blood is always kept roughly 7.37. It doesn't actually change, and it's just the cells and the tissues that actually change. Is it possible to quantify that? And is it a very slight change are we talking about here? Is it like just 7.1, 7.2? Um, so it, it's, it's kind of like a, a quite fine test uh, to understand that. Yes, it is. I'm, I'm speaking here about very slight changes. Uh, you know, more acute, more dramatic changes are associated with life-threatening conditions because your body needs to stay within a very close range in its uh, pH in order to function. And the muscles can't work correctly. The brain can't work correctly. Your heart can't fire correctly. So that if you change... Uh, too much in your pH, you get into very, very serious uh, problems. So we're talking about very small shifts in in cellular pH. As it relates to uh, technologies, yes, there are research technologies and and, uh, there are probes, uh, cellular probes that can be used to measure intracellular pH, but these are not standard diagnostic uh, pieces of equipment. And so most uh, of the time, a assessment of pH is really built on clinical signs, which can be things like muscle cramping. It can be things like uh, in the case of uh, moving acidosis, you have uh, people who have their breath changes. It becomes uh, sweet and acetotic. Uh, You have uh, people who have difficulty with um, chronic pain that's often associated with uh, slight shifts in pH. You know about lactic acidosis that we call the, uh, uh, the muscle pain fatigue related problem that occurs like in the marathon and heavy exercise. Well, there's chronic lactic acidosis that's associated as, as well with chronic uh, muscle pain. So these are the more common types of things that I think one uses for assessing pH balance versus using a, a specific uh, diagnostic laboratory procedure. Great. Thank you for that clarification. 
The other important aspect I've seen about alkalinity is there's a lot of alkaline water for sale now in a lot of the shops. From your perspective, does that chain help to change the cellular pH? Is that beneficial at all, or is there no science behind that? Well, I haven't seen a lot of good research on it. I mean, a lot of these things that we see uh, that are being sold commercially, uh, you know, have a theory of uh, of interest, uh, but in practice, there's no real clinical data to support their expense. And when we start looking at some of the cost-benefit relationships, the cost is reasonably high and the benefit is not so obvious. So I'm a little bit skeptical of some of these claims that are being made. Thank you very much. Another important topic, and one that has always been relatively confusing to me on my journey of getting better um, is healing crises or detox crises. Supposedly, when we're detoxing, sometimes we have to go through this period of feeling worse in order to feel better. What is your perspective on that? Yeah, I I think that's another very interesting uh, observation. Having been involved with this field of metabolic detoxification now for the better part of 30 years and published many papers and seen literally thousands of different patients under control, studies uh, in detoxification over those 30 years, I've come to the recognition that the concept of a a healing crisis, we ought to drop the term healing and just call it crisis. There is no such thing as a healing crisis. When you're in crisis, if you have acute symptoms, that's not a good thing. That's the body saying you're overdoing it. A properly designed detoxification program does not produce a crisis. It may produce transient symptoms. It may produce a feeling of spaciness on the second or third day, ravenous hunger for a couple of days until you get uh, your your body adjusted, or it may even have uh, things like joint pains and headaches that occur. But these are not a crisis. They should be easily manageable, and if they're not, then that, uh, that program that you're using for detox is inappropriate. It needs to be modified. Thank you very much. What kinds of things could bring this on? Because through my journey, I was going through a lot of healing crises until, until actually I came across work, you, you, know, you talking on the detox summit, um, and I finally got the answer to this question, which I'd been asking a lot of people for a long time about this healing crisis. Is it necessary or not? Because it makes it very hard to understand if you're getting better or if you're getting worse. Um, so I think it's very confusing for a lot of people on, on their journeys, no matter the condition. So in terms of where this comes from, since I learned about this, like I've actually, I don't get healing crises anymore. It's great. Um, so that's obviously a great benefit to the patient, keeps them more motivated as well. But from your perspective, where is a healing crisis coming from? Is it something specifically that hasn't been addressed and needs addressing? Are there a couple of roots um, that need addressing or is there some simple way of looking at that? I think so. The model that I uh, have used, which I, I believe is factually correct, is that a person who is overloading their body's detoxification system through a detox program, meaning they're releasing more toxins from stored fat tissue or within the body than their, um, their detox system can manage, now what they're getting is an amplified toxicity. It's actually their body is now toxic because they're not able to manage the toxins that they are releasing. And so the way that you prevent that is to slow the release of toxins and to increase the body's detoxification program or detoxification ability. That's why I'm not a big believer in fasting as a focus for detoxification because I think in fasting you get into nutritional depletion that then lowers your body's detoxification ability and makes you more vulnerable to the toxins that you're releasing to produce toxic symptoms. So the approach that we developed uh, 
starting back in the early 1990s through the studies uh, that we did was to make sure a person is getting augmented levels of the specific nutrients that are necessary for supporting the phase one and phase two detoxification uh, processes and obviously getting proper fluids. So they're, they're flushing out these materials, not storing them in their body, these uh, uh, liberated toxins, and that they're taking in adequate uh, calories, particularly in the, in the way of um, specific protein that's necessary to support uh, the proper detoxification. So it's not a fasting. It's a what I would call a modified detoxification, clean, nutrient-rich dietary program. Uh, what that leads to over the course in our experience of 14 to 20 days is uh, an extraordinarily successful with lower adverse signs and symptoms in uh, the patient getting or the person getting clean. And when they get clean, they know it. They think clearly. They act clearly. They sleep uh, better. They have more energy. The chronic pain is reduced. Uh, if you've never been through that, it's hard to describe the feelings to a person until they've done it because it's an amazing experience. Great. Thank you very much. Rounding off the interview now, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's really great to get these details on the basis of your work. There's one thing about functional medicine that I found as I've kind of been going through my journey that there's lots of different providers of tests um, today. You know, there's lots of different labs where we can look at uh, doctor's data, uh, metametrics, genova diagnostics, biohealth. And, you know, there's many different providers at the moment. And it seems a little less regulated than traditional medicine where, it, I mean, everything seems to go to LabCorp or, or some other you know, big lab that and be a bit more standardized and the measures on the tests are also different. So I think for many people that can be a bit of a, for instance, if you go to several different functional providers, uh, functional medicine providers, they're going to maybe favor different tests and so on. So could you talk a little bit about the journey of functional medicine in terms of using lab testing and where you think it's going and what kind of stage it is? And if you see there's anything that needs to happen going forward in terms of standardization or anything like that? Yes, I think, uh, Obviously, many of these tests that we're talking about or we've alluded to um, are specialty tests. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're unregulated and they don't have standards of identity. It just means that they're not in the standard and customary tests that um, all physicians use like you would have if you went to your doc and had a physical exam and they did a blood test and you had 20 different things in your blood analyzed. Those would be your kind of your standard things. So these are more specialized uh, tests that are used within the functional medicine practitioner environment. And this is one of the reasons that I really think it's, it's uh, very useful for a person if they move down this road uh, as they get more into tuning up their health, that they uh, have a functional medicine provider as their, as their ally because these are people who have been skilled in the art, been trained to know how to, what to use and, and how to interpret these tests and, and not just to assume that testing just for testing's sake is beneficial. It's the right test for the right person or the right set of circumstances and then the right interpretation of the results. So my belief is that testing is a part of the functional medicine model, but it is not the functional medicine model in itself. Much of what you can learn about a person doesn't need testing. It needs the right way of asking the questions, and that's what I've tried to bring out in my book. The questions you ask determine the answers you get. If you never ask the questions, you're never going to get those answers. So it's all about the, the asking about the patient's story, understanding the patient's story, in which then specific tests become part of uh, defining, uh, you know, what I guess taking the hypothesis to understanding so that you can design a specific program for that person that's going to meet their need and lead to the, the health outcome that they're desiring. Great. Thank you very much for that. 
So looking forward, is there anything that you're excited about, say, the next five or 10 years about the use of biomarkers in functional medicine? Is there any, do you see any opportunities in the future, whether it be like looking at epigenetics or anything new on the horizon that might help functional medicine practitioners to get better diagnoses or help people better monitor their health and so on? Is there anything interesting you see ahead or that, that you'd like to turn up in the future? Absolutely so. Um, we're living right through, and this is actually a wonderful place to kind of bring our discussion to a close because it, it really, I think, is uh, is real time. We're in a, a health revolution right now that's second to none. This this is equivalent in its uh, extraordinary uh, discovery period as to that of the, the turn of the last century when the origin of infectious diseases was uh, discovered as caused by microbes. And then from that uh, immunotherapy and antibiotics were developed, which really transformed healthcare. We're having that same extraordinary revolution in thinking right now, and it's around how we're going to manage chronic illness based upon these characteristics of dysfunction. And there are three intersecting changes that are occurring right now that I think are absolutely revolutionizing this field. One we've talked about, and that's the omics revolution, genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, that really allow us to analyze certain aspects of how our genes are expressed and how they are able to be induced to produce good health uh, through activating our resilience genes. And, and, you know, every one of us has some areas of our genetic uh, weak spots, uh, but fortunately, most of us have, in fact, I would say everyone has resilience genes that can kind of neutralize our risk spots if we turn on our resilience genes. So I think that this particular period that we're, um, we're undergoing right now in discovery is helping us to understand what are those characteristics and how do we measure them. I mean, soon virtually everyone will be able to have a, a full gene analysis done, a full genomic analysis for the cost of uh, a normal lab test, probably somewhere in the range of less than uh, $1,000 and probably uh, eventually for a few hundred dollars. And that will ultimately become insurance reimbursable and we'll all have uh, that ticker tape of our genetic information. That coupled with um, the internet and social media, where information is now being communicated, transferred, and and analyzed in ways never before uh, so that it it gives power to the person to own their own genetic information, their own personal health information. And then lastly, uh, big data, now in the cloud, where uh, what's called informatics is allowing this huge amounts of new data that is being available, made available to people to be analyzed in such a way as it becomes sensible and a person knows what it means, not just a bunch of ones and zeros, but actually operational and, and instructive about a person's own personal health program. Those three things, which we used to think were way out in the future, are now happening in real time. The, the wearable devices that we have, like uh, Fitbits and and jawbones and so forth, and the, and the new devices that are coming out to measure all sorts of biometrics um, and how that data that each one of us generates about ourselves each day goes to the cloud and gets analyzed and comes back to us and helps us to assess what we need to do to be healthy throughout the course of our life is a disruptive innovation that's changing healthcare. And we're all living through it right now. We have a generation of kids that are all social media savvy. They're very comfortable with sharing things that their parents' generation never was willing to share about their health and their genes. And all of this is transformative uh, within the next 10 to 20 years. The rules of the road that we have lived with uh, upon doctors owning information, everything's about disease diagnosis, all of that is going to go away. We're being replaced with a whole new system 
that will emerge underneath us with the kids that are growing up in the uh, video game revolution and social media and the age of genomics that uh, will be transformative. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. That sounds like a very exciting uh, future, and that fits very well with what we talk about often on this show. So it's certainly what I'm excited about as well. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Jeffrey. I know you're a busy man, and I really appreciate your many, many decades of experience coming on the show and sharing your opinions with us and your ideas. I've appreciated it very much, and uh, I hope we've given some news to you to your listeners. Thanks a million. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.